Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, and today we have a big show for you guys. My first guest, but not my only guest today, is Adam Mosseri, the head of Instagram. We booked this one a while back because Adam was going to be in town for the Met Gala, which is a funny thing to say. And then the Wall Street Journal published a very good and very disturbing story about internal research at Instagram that suggests the service is harmful to some of its youngest users, particularly teen girls. So I wondered if he was going to show up to chat about that, but he did, so we did. We also talked about a lot more stuff, TikTok, regulation, paying creators, more. There's, there's a lot here for you guys. But that's not all. I also talked to John Kelly. He's the editor-in-chief of Puck. It's the buzzy news site slash email publisher that launched this week. I am already on the record as being a Puck fan. We've had Puck's Matt Bellany on the show already. I am curious about the financial structure behind the company, so we talked about all of that, too. Okay, so all that's coming up. And first, here's Adam Mosseri. I'm here with Adam Mosseri, who is head of Instagram. Welcome, Adam. Thank you for having me. Uh, You've had a week. It has been a busy week. Uh, It's been a busy 18 months, but it's been a particularly busy week. You're here in New York. You went to the Met Gala on Monday. And on Tuesday, the Wall Street Journal wrote a really uh, hard-hitting story about internal research at Instagram and and the way that Instagram users, specifically teens, feel about the way Instagram affects them. There's a lot of stuff in there where we could spend hours talking about it, but I wanted to get to it right away and try to sum it up. Facebook's own research, this is the journal reporting, but it seems pretty straightforward, shows that a sizable minority of teenagers who use Instagram believe the app makes them feel worse about themselves, that they feel addicted to it. Um, the journal reports that you guys have done this surveys, these this research yourself, and you have not shared it outside of the company, even when asked about it. You guys responded to this. You had a blog post up and said, "This research, this research exists. It's accurate. Uh, we th- we don't think the journal framed it accurately. So, what's a more accurate framing in your mind?" Well, backing up a little bit, I th- if there's anybody who uses. Instagram or any of our services and leaves feeling worse about themselves, that's a real issue that we want to try and address. So I want to make sure I say that up front. I also think, to put things in perspective a little bit, when you connect people, whether it's online or offline, good things can happen and bad things can happen. And as a result, that's also true on Instagram because it's true on social media because that's what social media does. It's connecting people. And I think that what's important is that the industry as a whole tries to understand both those positive and negative outcomes and do all they can to magnify the positive and to identify and address the negative outcomes. So that's why we're doing this research. I don't think of this article as airing our dirty laundry or anything like that. I'm proud of the fact that we're doing this work. There's a lot of industries and there's a lot of other companies in our industry that I'm sure have an effect on people's, well, I'll say have effects on negative social comparison that aren't proactively trying to understand it and find ways to address it. What the 
article speaks to is a number of issues, but primarily a number around negative social comparison. We've tried to over the last... Negative social comparison is I'm comparing myself to someone I see on the internet or someone I know in real life, and that makes me feel bad. Exactly. So social comparison just means comparing yourself to another person, um, whether it's online or offline. Negative means you feel worse about it, but there's also positive social comparison, Mm -hmm. which can happen online and offline as well. The biggest mistake I think we made as a company was a long time ago not fully embracing our responsibility early enough to try to understand negative outcomes and address them. And I think we've done a a really immense amount of work and invested more than I think any other company in the world over the last five years. But one of the things that we tried to start doing at Instagram about three years ago was, okay, yes, we need to address issues like elections integrity and hate speech more broadly, but what are some areas where we can be more proactive, where we can try and find opportunities to innovate? And so we first identified bullying. We said that publicly after we had done some research, and we've launched a number of things over the years, hidden words and DMs and comments, restrict, limits, and some more coming. Uh, We also, actually the next that we wanted to be more proactive around was social comparison. We started doing some research about two years, two and a half years ago. Is this maybe? research that you've asked for specifically? Yeah, yeah. And and you came you three years ago is when you you became head of Instagram, roughly. I yeah I t- I joined Instagram as the head of product in March of 2018 and took over in October, yeah. and I think this might have been 2019. Okay. But the, the we are less far along than I would like us to be in large part because in 2020 everything got turned on its head. Uh, this specific team ended up getting shifted towards trying to uh, better un- un- understand equity issues in the wake of all the unrest around social inequality, particularly here in the States. But we had a lot of stuff that came up, particularly around COVID. So we kind of lost a year, um, but we picked it back up um, about half a year ago. And so what the journal has is a collection of resources, not all of the research, but a collection of you know presentations about that research. And you know, I think they are trying to raise awareness about an important issue, and I understand that. I wish we were further along in it, but I do feel cautiously optimistic that there are things that we can do in this space if we put our minds to it. So, but back to my question, what what is a more act? So you, you, you said we we're not disputing the fact that they have these this data. We don't think they're framing it correctly. I'm, I'm trying to give you a way to, to say, here's the positive version of this data. And, and to be clear, I think most people who've listened, who are listening to this podcast have read the article or skimmed it. But just to be clear, I mean, some of the, the quotes from these slides the journal published, uh, one in five teens say Instagram make them, makes them feel worse about themselves. Teens who struggle with mental health say Instagram makes it worse. So what what are we not getting when we see those those quotes from internal internal slides produced by your employees? A few different things. Um, It's a few thousand words into the article before they talk about the difference between correlation and causation. And one of the things that we know about negative mental health issues more broadly online is that the most important things are your state of mind when you're using social media and then how you use social media and the interaction thereof. So that's pretty buried in there. Another is a number of those studies actually, we actively recruited teenagers who were struggling with negative social comparison. And so the denominator there isn't all teens or all teenage girls. It's the subset of people who are having active or having yeah, active struggles. And so again, there's a selection bias there. But I don't really want to be punching holes in the issue. I think that they it's I don't 
I don't, I, I have bias, obviously, from where I sit and given my responsibilities. But my read on the article is it was largely one sided, but I get where they're coming from. And I, um, and I don't want to really quibble about details. I want to take a look at the over, at the overarching narrative, make sure that there's not anything that we have that's a blind spot, find the signal, ignore the noise. It can be uncomfortable to be scrutinized in public, but I think it's a fundamentally healthy thing, and then leverage this as much as I can into helping us move forward. So I appreciate that you don't want to play media critic. As, as, as head of Instagram, do you feel like the product should not be available to certain kinds of people? I mean, if, if this is something that, gen, that genuinely could make, and you don't know yet, right? You're, that you're saying we don't, we don't, we're not fully confident in the research. But if there's a chance that this is a product that could really harm people in the same way that you know, cigarettes could harm people, that you guys should be restricting it or maybe taking it off the market. Absolutely not. I, and I really don't agree with the comparison to drugs or cigarettes, which have very limited, if any, upsides. I think that Anything that is going to be used at scale is going to have positive and negative outcomes. Cars have positive and negative outcomes. We understand that. We know that more people die than would otherwise because of car accidents. But by and large, it cre cars create way more value in the world than they destroy. And I think social media is similar. I think that we do a ton to help people connect with those that they love. We've helped advance a number of important social causes particularly Me Too and Black Lives Matter. We help small businesses make a living. We help creators find ways to express themselves. There's a bunch of them. We give voice to those who have been historically marginalized. There's a ton of value that we create. And But yes, of course, there are also issues as well. Because like I said before, connecting people has positive and negative outcomes. If we continue with the car metaphor, there's tons of regulation around cars over the years. Uh, the government stepped in to say you need to install you know, Seatbelts. Seatbelts and airbags, and, and there's all kind of discussion about, about further regulation. Do we need that level of, of regulation and government intervention with, with social media? I think regulation is needed. We've been pretty public about that. I think it's— But that's—I mean, it's, it's very light touch right now. It's, it's, it varies a lot by um, country. I, in the U.S.? In the U.S., it is quite light touch. Um, I think there are a number of opportunities for regulation to help the industry more broadly. And I think as much as we can, we need industry-wide solutions and ideally not country-specific solutions. Um, we've talked publicly about how we think there's more opportunity within the world of elections and elections interference, particularly around ads transparency. I actually think we are more transparent than any other ad platform in existence right now. Um, there's a bunch of, I think, opportunities for what we would internally call content problems. So when you define a problem, having a more consistent definition of something like hate speech could be really helpful there. Data portability, we think, is an important, important piece. We think you have to be careful because regulation can cause more problems. Yes, it can, as we've said before, make it more difficult for newcomers to come in. But more clear things are if you, for instance, put a very high... I'll give you an example. If you have something like hate speech and you define it very, very broadly, and you have huge fines for every time something doesn't come down fast enough, you create a very strong incentive for companies like ours to take down a ton of content. Mm -hmm. And that runs the risk of slipping into censorship. So you have to be careful. I'm not trying to advocate for regulation as some sort of blank check broadly, but I do think it's we are a big enough industry that it's important and we need to evolve it forward. I saw some suggestion on social media yesterday that that you guys would have a different perspective if there were more people at Facebook leadership and Instagram leadership that had teenagers um, and, or teen girls in their household specifically. Um, do you think this is a blind spot for the company that this is just stuff that you aren't haven't paid enough attention to and maybe still it's not resonant enough? 
I don't think so. Again, I the article this week in the journal, I feel like really misses the point that we care enough to actively try to invest in research. We work with third-party researchers as well, and that we w- are also looking for things that we can do in the product. I don't think anybody else in the industry is doing that. But, I mean, people like our friends our age who are women grew up in the States looking at magazines and probably having all sorts of difficulty comparing themselves to an unrealistic definition of beauty. And I don't know any magazine organization or, or publisher that did proactive research into this space, nor are we talking about that right now. And so I get that social media is new, that new mediums or new media are always going to be scrutinized. There's a phase of overexcitement, and then there's a phase of fear, and then hopefully some balance. Um, but I just, I think of this over the long run, and I think that we're going to get to a better and better place. It's not we can't turn it off. Like, the Internet's not going away. So what we have to figure out is how to move forward responsibly. I thought a lot about the magazine metaphor um, that you just brought up and the fact that, you know, we've had images of, of, of what beauty looks like. A lot of this is, is based specifically about thinness and how you should look. Um, that's a long—we've had that forever. Um, there is something different with digital media where it's intended to engage with you constantly and to get you to come back, and it's maybe a deeper and more intense relationship than flipping through a Vogue, maybe. I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I'm sure Vogue was trying to, to engage you as sure. much as they could and get you to come back as much as they could, but there's also some real— positives about social media in this issue. It's much more easy to connect with a definition or a version of beauty that you might more be able to relate to or that you can actually attain in a world where you can connect to anyone anywhere. If you don't look like the the fashion industry's definition of beauty in the mid-90s, it was very difficult to find anybody that you could relate to or anybody who you could aspire to be like one day. And, And not just on social media, but on the internet more broadly, you can find, you know, you know, we had the Met this week. The, the contrast between the Met and this article is not lost on me. But I think the fashion industry right now is trying to evolve. They've got a lot more room to grow. But, you know, you had a much more diverse group. You had a lot of plus-size models. That's something that didn't happen a few decades ago. And I think social media and the Internet more broadly is part of that shift. The other strain of the, of the article and, and the criticism you guys have gotten is about the, the fact that you conducted this research but haven't made it available widely. And people have asked, what kind of research have you guys done? And you basically, have, I, Mark Zuckerberg said, I don't know anything about, you know, negative effects. Um, and now you have, you have um, senators asking for this stuff. First of all, is it is there any way that you can provide this stuff without a subpoena or without an internal leak? Or another way of putting it, it seems like this stuff is going to come out through leaks or subpoenas, so why not make it more widely available? So broadly speaking, I think it's also important to differentiate because all these issues are connected and so they kind of get glommed together. Um, what we've talked about in the past is usually well-being more broadly. This article is more about social comparison specifically. But in general, we think it's important to get more information out there. And we try to do research internally that we don't share because it's much more efficient. We can move much more quickly, and these issues are important. I want to make fast progress. But we also do work with third-party researchers like Dr. Diedrich at um, the Center for Appearance Research, which is the largest organization focused on body images in the world right now. We pay for their time because our time is valuable, but that is, you know, with third-party researchers. And we're also looking for ways to provide data to researchers who we don't pay so that you don't have any questions of bias. That second and third category just take more time, but it's not an either-or, it's a yes-and. So we're trying to move forward on all three of those 
And we do that, I think, in a number of different issues at this point, not just in social comparison. And I think we're further along on the internal research because it's much easier to move quickly. And so there's, you know, privacy is a big issue, for instance. So, for instance, in all the studies in that are that the Wall Street Journal acquired, we have assured all of the participants that they would remain anonymous mm -hmm. and what they said would remain anonymous. And, you know, we can't respect that necessarily. But you could provide that same top line. The slides that, that are, are recreated or that are, or that are in the journal story, right, those are, those are your slides. Those don't identify the respondents. Yeah, but there are quotes there, and I mm -hmm. think there are concerns there. And I think, I mean, we've been pushed very hard on privacy for good reason, and I think we're trying to embrace that responsibility. Again, we're going to have to do internal research. I think we need to summarize that on some cadence and get that out there. We're going to work with third-party researchers and pay for their time. And we're also going to try to find ways to provide data to researchers who we don't pay in a privacy-safe way. If we do all three of those things, I think we can get to a healthy place over time. We're further along in some areas, like you know, self-harm, and we're not as far along in areas that we're newer to, like social comparison. While we're on the regulation front, um, drumbeat for a couple of years, and now with the Biden administration and the appointees they've put into the FTC and the DOJ, there's a call to, to break up uh, Facebook and specifically to sort of unwind the Instagram acquisition. Um, I'm not going to ask you how you if you think that's a good idea. Um, how would it work if Instagram was a separate company? What would break? What would be okay at this point? So it's, it's hard because it's hypothetical. I'm actually curious if you think we should be broken up or not, so I'll ask you that after I answer. Sure. Um, the... I think the key thing, if you're interested in divestiture, is to be specific about what outcome you're trying to achieve. So, for instance, my first worry would be that we would be in a ton of trouble on addressing any safety and integrity and well-being issues. There are more people that work on safety and integrity at the Facebook company than there are people who work at all of Instagram. The first thing I pushed for when I joined Instagram in 2018 as the head of product, and I, had, I actually broke a promise, I said, I'm not going to push for any changes. I'm going to try to ramp up and learn about the culture, learn about the product. And the one place where I ended up breaking that promise was well-being and integrity because I found very quickly that we had a tiny team compared to Facebook and we were running our own solutions. So that would be the biggest problem right away. So we would fall way behind on hate speech, elections integrity, as transparency, all of these issues that we care deeply about. So that would be, I don't even know how we would get through that. No, but that would be the first thing I would worry about most. The second would be that I don't. We would we would have to figure out how to pay everybody because all of a sudden our revenue would go to zero and we have to build up our own ad system from scratch. Um, and so I don't know how long that would take. So, but quite frankly, I haven't thought that much about it. Not that I don't think it's an important question or that I don't think you know I'm not I'm under a rock and I don't understand that the, what the FTC is pushing for. But because I think that the most productive use of my time is to try to figure out how to make Instagram provide more value for the people who use it, both by, like I said before, identifying the opportunities to create value for people and do good, and also identify issues and try to address those issues as quickly as possible. So I, I focus uh, 50 times more on that than I do on trying to think through what divestiture would look like. Yeah, it'd be weird if you were planning for it. Yeah, no. it'd be a little weird. I mean, maybe there's a there's a break, break glass in case of emergency plan, but... You tell me. Uh, no, the, the the idea that that Facebook and Instagram, and I asked Susan Wojcicki this about YouTube a couple of years ago, are so big that that only they, only the combined, you know, Google, only the combined Facebook can can self-regulate these companies. Um, 
may be true, but it's also kind of a circular logic and kind of protects you from from ever having to contemplate what life would be like if you were broken up. Yeah, though I'm, I don't think that's the argument I'm trying to make. Because the other thing is there there is a lot of I'm more worried about the competition right now. I'm more worried about the world changing around us and us not keeping up. I don't think things have ever been as competitive as they are today in the social media space, particularly for young people. I mean, TikTok is a behemoth. YouTube, we don't talk enough about. Snapchat is still very relevant and doing quite well. Um, iMessage is a huge deal for, for teens. Um, you have you have young your kids are eleven and thirteen, so they are into Discord, right? Discord now. is a big deal. Um, Twitch is a big deal. So I, I focus more there. Uh, I'm not saying that there needs to be one behemoth or four behemoths or ten behemoths. Um, I just think that too much of the argument today is looking back at what could have been or what should have been, and not enough is focused on how do we move forward. And I think that's a more costly mistake today than would have been 10 or 20 years ago because the world is changing more rapidly every year. Yeah, and I do I do grapple with the idea if you're going to have more stringent regulation for stuff that's present day or future— Everyone is going to come up with some kind of AR, VR glasses in the next couple of years. You, you guys just didn't. You promised me to you were going to bring me the, the, the Ray-Bans. Hold on. Let me text. Let me text. Tom. No, no, no. It's fine. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, the AR, VR glasses are coming. I don't know if anyone wants them, but but they're coming. You're not wearing them now, right? No, no? I'm not. Okay. So I, actually, light on. I have a pair of Ray-Bans. That I have the Ray-Ban st- stories. I need to swap out the lenses for my prescription lenses because I don't wear sunglasses. I wonder who in the government is going to think about the way to regulate new products that only kind of exist theoretically right now. I mean, that is a big challenge, I think, is the speed of regulation has historically been slower than the pace of innovation. And as the pace of innovation accelerates, that gap is going to become more problematic. So it's it's a problem, but I also don't trust you or Apple or Google or anybody else to have my best interest in mind with these glasses. Maybe maybe you will. Interesting. Why? Because if you screw up, you can apologize later and pay a five billion dollar fine or whatever it is. In the meantime, real harm has been done. I don't I don't have an answer, by the way. Um, but I don't think leaving it up to Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg and Satya. Um, I'm not comfortable with that either. That's fair. I think a few different things. One is I, I, do, I do think any proper balance is going to be a combination of self-regulation and government regulation. So I get that. I want to acknowledge that. But I also think that by and large, the consumer, the individual, is much more empowered now than they were mm-hmm. a few decades ago. All of these companies are trying to, for the most part, build something and design something that you're going to find valuable because you have more choice now than you ever had before. So I actually think the industry's the tech industry's interests are more aligned with individual interests. Yeah, and you don't want to kill before. your customer, and I get it, and 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 or or any version of that, right? I'm thinking back to cars. But it's right? not even about mitigating bad. I think it's about creating good. You want yeah, to- yeah. But you just want some kind of you want some kind of voice saying, "Hey, let's slow this down, or let's think through this, or let's think through the the possible negative effects of this." But that, by the way, may not show up next year, but five or ten years. I constantly think about the fact that. 30 years from now, there's going to be a study that says that the fact that I had AirPods in my ear for, for three decades and that I was wearing an Apple Watch for, for three decades was probably not good for my health. 
and whoever's running Apple then will apologize, and maybe there'll be a settlement, but it won't really help me. Uh, on the other hand, I'm wearing the AirPods, and I'm wearing the, the watch. But are you an optimist or a pessimist more broadly? Oh, what do you think I'm doing? I'm in journalism. <laughs> and I'm in tech, so yeah. there, 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 are, there are the biases. I mean, look, I think it's a healthy tension. I think it's a healthy tension. I think that the... I do feel like the tech industry broadly, and I don't. Want, I want to be careful not to speak on behalf of the entire industry here, but I do feel like broadly speaking, the excessive optimism of five or ten years ago has been dampered significantly, and I think that's healthy. Um, but I also feel like it's important to stay optimistic because I think an immense amount of good has come from technology, and if you don't focus on that at least with a good with most of your time you're going to miss opportunities to create more value for people yeah, and by the way that's fun to write and cover this stuff um even when there's downsides um and it is moving forward and there is it's i'm not covering you know steel plants in in pennsylvania uh, i mean yeah i mean it's also important <laughs> well it was it was um let's go back to tiktok um yes, it seems like it should be on your mind pretty much constantly you announced this summer that instagram is no longer a photo sharing service it's an entertainment service but really you said it's a video service um and it seems like it's you you want to make it a tiktok alternative or competitor. You have a version of it within Instagram. We'll talk about that in a second. But you said we're going to make changes. They're coming. Can you expand on sort of what Instagram is going to become if it's not a photo sharing service? Yeah. So that got more coverage than I anticipated. I do. You you roll your eyes at me. You can't see this listener, but he's rolling his eyes at me, which is fair. Um, But I do these videos every week and I say what's on my mind every week. And so (laughs) this one apparently was- I'm radically changing the product that I run? I've said I've said that we're changing things in lots of ways, but who knows? I'm I'm desensitized. Maybe I'm, I'm not well calibrated. Apparently, so I apologize. So, in the two top reasons people they say say people say they use Instagram from all of our research are to stay connected to close friends and to be entertained. And TikTok squarely competes with us in the latter, and will shortly compete with us in the former. If you've looked at what ByteDance has done in China, it has regularly been a canary for what they're going to do here in the U.S. And I think we're going to see them go into group messaging and events and a bunch of other core use cases that we try and you know serve at Facebook and at Instagram probably next year, early next year. So we will see. So we're going to compete across the whole gamut. I think that the other thing, though, TikTok aside, is we're always trying to understand these paradigm shifts. How is the world changing? Because the biggest risk to us isn't necessarily competition, though competition is a huge risk, but that what we do just becomes irrelevant. And I think one of the most important shifts in, in the world of entertainment is the shift towards shorter, more entertaining video, particularly on phones. And that's because of the internet, that's because of smartphones. And I think what TikTok really exploited was a hole in the market that we weren't fully addressing, YouTube wasn't fully addressing, and even TV wasn't fully addressing, or Snapchat. And I think you've seen explosive growth, particularly accelerated by the pandemic um, of them. And so I think they're a really, and I think they're one of the most aggressive, well-executing, um, smart competitors we've ever faced. So uh, yeah, I do think about it a lot. What we want to do with Instagram, though, is we don't want to turn Instagram into TikTok. I think we'll just end up being a second version, probably not quite as good at best, you know, in a few years. That doesn't sound like a winning strategy. 
What I want to figure out is how we can evolve forward, embrace the reality that people are more interested in video than they've ever been, and that's growing. Embrace the reality that power is shifting from institutions to individuals, and the creator is the future in a lot of ways of small businesses, and that's growing. But do so in a unique way to Instagram. And I think we were caught out of position uh, over the last few years. We just haven't embraced video enough. So what I meant wasn't that we're not going to support photos. We will continue to mm -hmm. support photos. But that we're going to make video a more first-class part of the experience. And we're going to do that by evolving how feed looks and how feed works and how and how we integrate video into the entire experience. So I'm going to see more video when I open up Instagram. Well, yes. By default, as opposed to having to go to it or look for it. Well, yes and no. That's going to happen no matter, even if we stop changing. So if, 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 if we locked Instagram ranking and Instagram design today, video would continue to grow on its own. So that's just going to happen. Because people are going to upload. People are uploading more video and people are consuming more video as the cost of data goes down, as the reach of the internet goes up, as speeds go up, et cetera. So that's going to happen no matter what. But what we want to do is, or I'll say it this way, I, if I'm honest, if I look at how Instagram feed looks and feels, particularly with video, it kind of feels like a website from 2008 was shrunk down and put on a phone. It doesn't feel mobile first. It doesn't, sounds not on, it's not full screen, it's not immersive. It's not nearly as engaging or entertaining. And so I'm, we're trying to figure out ways we can address those issues. But I also want to be clear. Video isn't the only paradigm shift that we're currently exploring. How do we embrace more? The other major one is messaging. And messaging is the primary way people talk to their friends. And if that's the, core, the other core business that we're in, we need to make messaging even more deeply integrated into the experience. So it's, it's not all video all the time, but that is one of the maybe three most important shifts we're trying to figure out how to lead into right now. It seems like users took to, especially younger users, took to messaging right away and figured out, oh, this is a way we can communicate. And maybe, by the way, you know, again, I think about kids a lot now, that uh, this is a way that we can communicate and our parents haven't quite figured out that we're using to communicate. What else can you do with it, uh, messaging, to, to make it more robust? So I think we, to... To Instagram's credit, before I joined Instagram, did a decent amount to embrace it. So, for instance, we don't have the ability to reshare from feed back into feed. The default flow there is actually messaging. The feedback mechanism for stories is messaging. So it is deeply integrated into the experience today. But I think if we had known that it was going to be the most important way people communicate, we would have embraced it even more. Um, if you look at it's it's young people, but it's also anybody who's new to the Internet. So basically, if you are new to the Internet because you're Young. Young. Or if you knew the internet because you just got internet access, so take a look at the data in India, for instance, where you've got hundreds of millions of people coming online uh, in a very short amount of time. The primary thing that they do that is social online is is definitely message, which is why, you know, Kakao Talk is so big in Korea and Line is so big in Japan and WhatsApp is so big in India. And this is actually a blind spot, I think, for a lot of us here in the States, because most other countries have one primary messaging service that 90 plus percent of the country uses. We don't. We have a lot of fragmentation. Mm -hmm. um, iMessage is probably the biggest. SMS is still very relevant. Snap is very relevant. And it's relatively easy to switch back and forth. If someone wants to DM me on Twitter, I can go over there. It'd be more convenient if it was all one integrated thing, but I'm happy. It's a low cost for me to switch. I don't think that's the primary reason. I think the primary reason is that we had relatively low SMS cost and high just wealth. Um, so the primary value proposition for most of these messaging apps was it was much cheaper than what the carriers were charging for SMS. And either it was a country where the carriers were charging way too much 
or it was a country that just didn't have the spending power on average. And free texting was a really compelling mm -hmm. value proposition. Um, but for most of the world, they have gravitated slowly but surely towards one, one primary messaging app. The biggest exceptions are the U.S., Canada, and Australia, which, I, mean, which I don't know. I mean, those are culturally similar or approximate, so maybe there's something there. I'm not sure. Back to TikTok. You guys have a TikTok clone. It's called Reels. Uh, I think it's less than a year old. Um, I've watched it reasonably carefully, and it's also I've spent a lot more time with TikTok in the last few months. I'm sure you'll dispute this, but from what I can see, everything on Reels is a, comes from TikTok. It either is, you can see the watermark, the TikTok water, watermark, or it's literally a video that I've seen and they figured out how to port it without the watermark. Are you okay if Reels is just a place to watch TikToks, but it's, it's on a Facebook-owned property? No, that's not a good outcome. <laughs> I think that's well, I mean, it's, you got engagement, right? That's good. I know, but I think it's important for us to be a home for a decent percentage of creators no matter what. Um, so we definitely see some with the watermark. We see um, a decent amount of cross-posting. Cross-posting isn't as bad, though, because actually a decent percentage, I think, for— If I make a video and put it in both places at the same time, yeah. you don't consider that to be a TikTok video that's being ported to Reels? Yeah. Now, I would rather you post it just to Instagram, yeah. obviously. Differentiated content is of value, but that isn't as problematic to me as making something on TikTok and sharing it on Instagram. I've talked to a lot of short-form video creators over the last year, as you can imagine, and some use our tools. Some A lot use TikTok's tools, but a lot use their own tools. Um, you know, if you Sometimes it's just easier to edit on your, on your computer, for instance. Uh, so what we need to do is we need to catch up on the table stakes and the basics, which is a lot of what the last year has been about on creative tools, on ranking, on just how you treat video and Instagram and the overall. But we also need to start to differentiate. Otherwise, no one's going to want us to succeed and we're never going to close the gap. I think we've got interesting opportunities because we are a place where you connect with your close friends and you can imagine a bunch of interesting ways to talk about or share short-form video with people you care about and making, making new experiences around that idea. But I also think we can differentiate on the other side of the market, on the creator side of the market. We can be a place where you can be a successful creator even if you're not a short-form video creator. And I think one of the most important things we can do over the next, let's call it three to five years, is be the best place for creators to create content, to reach an audience, to make a living, and to feel safe while doing it. And I think if we do that, if we work on both sides, if we can differentiate for the viewer and create some unique experiences there, and create a robust suite of tools for the creator, then I think we can close this gap. But right now, we're behind. We're particularly behind in the U.S. Actually, we're doing much better in other countries. Obviously, India, where TikTok is banned, but even in countries like Brazil, where TikTok is big. Uh, but the U.S. is the one that we're most focused on right now. It's funny because uh, you guys helped launch TikTok. They spent a ton of money on Facebook. Um, they did. And you could argue now that you're still helping TikTok because... You go to Reels, you find a bunch of TikTok videos, and you go, maybe I should just go watch that over at TikTok if you're being exposed to it for the first time. Is, is there a way for you to throttle TikTok? I mean, you, don't, you don't like the word throttle. Um, is there a way for you to dissuade people from either posting TikToks or, or going to TikTok and saying, no, we've, we've got better stuff here? I mean, I think the best thing for us to do is just to compete and to try to offer something more compelling. We definitely, um, we, we, like everybody else, don't embrace watermarked videos. So, for instance, Snapchat has a policy against it, so they'll just take down the content entirely. 
we get regular feedback from people that they don't like seeing it because they feel like it's less, they can't engage with it. A lot of the core mechanics are broken. You can't get to the audio page, that sort of thing often. Uh, so we rank it lower in recommendation services if there's a watermark, whether it's TikToks or anybody else's. But over the long run, the most important thing by far is for us to find ways to differentiate and add value that you know they can't or do as well. The creator push you've been talking about and Mark Zuckerberg has talked about, it's interesting to me. Um, I followed YouTube for a long time. Big change for them was when they started paying people who made videos. They, they shared ad revenue with them. Somewhat transparent, somewhat oblique. Uh, TikTok has a version of that. There's a creator's fund that's much more oblique in terms of how that works. It's kind of like a lottery. But there's some connection between I have a popular video and I made some money from it. Absolutely. You guys don't have that at Instagram. I can't benefit directly from, from having a popular video in the main feed or on Reels, right? A few different things. So we think of this space as creator monetization more broadly. And we think of creators broadly. We think of you as a creator, even mm -hmm. though I don't think you're creating a reel or a TikTok anytime soon. Give me time. I'm gonna, I would pay to see it, just to this point, to your point exactly. We think that RevShare is one important tool, but the core challenge is the work that we've been doing on RevShare to date has been more focused on longer form videos and interstitial ads, showing an ad in the middle of a video, which by the way can feel like a, like a tax mm -hmm. on the experience. But in a world where video is shifting to shorter and shorter um, lengths, that becomes unsustainable. It just doesn't work. Um, so we're actually also looking, while we're continuing to explore that, we're looking at two other areas that I've got more confidence in. One is commerce more broadly. So there is branded content. Branded content is a multi-billion dollar industry on Instagram today. We don't participate in it indirectly, but there are ways we can probably help. We can help brands find creators that are going to be a good match for them. We can help creators vet brands based on mm -hmm. their experience with other creators in the past. There's affiliate marketing where you can imagine promoting a product and getting a kickback if, you if there's a transaction, if they're an established industry. But there's even merchandise, which I think isn't only relevant to the Kylie Jenners of the world with their with lip kits, but even you know baby bands who primarily make money selling t-shirts and vinyl. That's commerce. The other area that I'm really excited about, I don't have a good name for, but we internally call it, you know, user pay or user payments. So ways for fans to transact directly with the creators that they love. So you could imagine some subscription content or exclusive content that you could pay for and have access to. I love to. Adam Mosseri's reels. I'm going to pay him directly because I want him to keep Seems less more. likely yeah. than, you know, maybe... Everyone's you know, got a niche. Yeah, maybe Peter's hot takes on, you yeah. know, whatever's out in the news that morning. Um, but there's other things, too. I mean, there's, there's digital goods, there's tipping, we've got stars in live right now, which is... So these are all ways that could benefit a creator. Mm -hmm. um, nothing wrong with them. It's not how you guys make the bulk of your money. You make uh, Facebook and Instagram are advertising companies, 90-some percent of your revenue is that. Why not share more of that with creators? I definitely know there are YouTube creators who are there because that's the way they can make the most money. Uh, TikTok seems like they've got the most exposure right now. People are going there. It seems like you guys could afford to cut a slice of your revenue and, and, and distribute that to all of your creators, or your top creators. And so I, what I don't understand is, is there, do you think that's a technical problem that you just can't solve because the way the feed works and the way ads work, it's hard to sort of uh, connect the two, or is it more philosophical that you just don't want to slice that revenue off? I mean, YouTube is giving up 55% of the revenue, right, to their creators. Well, I think it depends on the video. I think that's in a video where they're doing rev shit. Yeah, sure. Up. So I, I, I don't think it's off the table. Like we are actively 
doing this right now in a beta with IGTV. Uh, but our, my personal worry with that is that if that's n- if long form video is not where all the growth is going to happen, then we're going to make it work for a piece of the ecosystem that's not as important. And so now we're trying to figure out what we can, what else we can do. How does that work in short form? One of the key things that's difficult in short form video is attribution. So if you show, like, how do you, if you if you watch five videos and there's an ad in the middle of those mm-hmm. five after the first two, and then you do, and then you stop before you see the next ad or whenever that would be. Who gets paid and how much? So there's some, but I don't think it's off the table. It's yeah. not a it's not a religious hard line. So we're we are actively exploring it. I've said that publicly before, but I also think that a huge thing that's very important, even even and this is somewhat contentious, more than how much a creator gets paid over the long run, is predictability. And one of the things I worry about, where when you're paying per engagement or exclusively based on engagement. Because engagement is volatile, because people's interests change, the world changes in a given day. One video that spikes up and the rest of the years never pick up yeah. again. And if, if it's going to be a business, you need some level of predictable income, which is why I'm we're exploring things like subscriptions and why for things where we do pay based on engagement, we're trying to figure out could there be based on rolling averages or ways to smooth it out so that you can run a business. Because if, if your income spikes by 5x and then drops back by 80% the next you know, two months later, that's, it becomes almost impossible to, to run a business responsibly. Um, I'm pausing here. I just I wanted to compliment your Met outfit because oh. you pulled it off. <laughs> it's uh, a hard switch. <laughs> um, was that something you lobbied for that you wanted to go dress up at the Met? Uh, so we have worked with the Met and with Vogue for a while. Like we've gone to the Met for a number of years. We've constantly advocated um, and tried to encourage more diverse representation, younger representation, representation from creators online. Um, and so we were excited at the opportunity to help fund the actual exhibition this year. I, I mean, they approached us, but we were excited about it. We it, it's been a ride because. Obviously, COVID-19 um, threw a huge wrench in all the plans for 2020. We showed up. We had fun. I was really excited that I think almost half of the attendees were there for the first time. But it is a it is a wild experience. It is not one that I pretend to feel completely comfortable you had with. a yellow and white sort of pantsuit thing going on. Yeah. So I, my favorite designer in the world is named, um, well, the brand is called Bodhi. Her name is Emily Bodhi. Nobody cares what I wear. Um, I've been to the Met once before, and they literally asked me to get out of the way so they could take pictures of uh-huh. Katy Perry as a chandelier behind me. Uh, so I thought, well, if I'm ever going to get someone to help me out now as as a honorary co-chair, maybe I'll have a chance. So we reached out, and she said yes. So she designed something, and I just said, I'm in your hands, whatever you want to do. So I am. you may be surprised, but I'm not in the Met ball demographic. No, I, I, my, I'm my shocked. But I was paying attention uh, on Monday, in part because I knew you were there and it was a thing, and I knew that you got there was a story about you guys had hired an influencer to be your your Met Gala broadcaster. Not broadcaster is the wrong word. Commentator. Commentator. Um, it was not in my Instagram feed at all. Uh, then I dutifully went to explore and didn't see it there. Uh, and then I typed in the uh, the hashtag and found some stuff. But I was really surprised for an event that you guys seem to invest a lot of energy in that you weren't pushing it at me. And I can't, and meanwhile, I went on Twitter, there was a Vogue live stream every, you know, every time I scrolled, I saw it. And again, I didn't really want to watch it. Um, is the fact that 
the Met Gala wasn't in my Instagram feed constantly? Is that is that a flaw that you want to fix? So you want to be able to push stuff to me? Or is that the product working as intended, that I'm not a Met Gala person, so I wasn't getting Met Gala stuff? That's the product working as intended. We don't want to be pushing content to people who aren't interested in that content. I mean, the inverse risk is that if people only ever see stuff that they already know about or that they're interested in, you know, there's the, the concerns around filter bubbles and echo mm-hmm. chambers. And so we try to make sure that we are thoughtful about the balance there. But if you fundamentally don't want to see me in a white and orange tux, then I don't feel like we should be pushing that to you. Fair enough. Um, Jelani, who is the, the, the person who's, who didn't go to the Met Gala because, because of her cousin's boyfriend's balls? Nicki Minaj. Oh, the, 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 co- she, oh my God, that was in a story. That was a Twitter story. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I don't want to leave the interview with Nicki Minaj and Cousins. There was a vac. so we required vaccines and that was a vaccine hesitancy story. Yes. Okay. We could do this for a couple more hours. So let's okay. do part two and part three next time you come to New York or next time I go out West. Yeah. Uh, Adam Asuri, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. Thanks again to Adam Asuri for coming into chat. In a minute, we're going to talk to John Kelly, but first, a word from a sponsor. I'm here with John Kelly. He's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Puck, which is a fun thing to say out loud on a podcast. It's a media company. Since you are listening to a media podcast, there's a good chance you've heard about this launch, and it is definite that this launch is aimed at you, the Recode Media listener. Welcome, John. Thanks, Peter. Great to be here. Um, Should we do all the disclosure first? I've known you for a long time. I worked with you. We yep. talked about this project a I've couple talked, times. Yeah, I've talked to people who left my employer mm-hmm. to go work for you. Mm-hmm. I've talked to people who were thinking about going to work for you but didn't. Mm-hmm. We've known about this for a while, and now it's launched. It's out in the publics, and I've now now I've done my disclosure. But instead of having me tell people about how much I know about this project, you tell people about this project. Well, Peter, thanks. And indeed, we could go on about disclosures for a long time. This is a media company aimed at your audience, and we want to have the inside conversation. So I'm glad we're having it. We are Puck. We're a brand-new media company, a subscription media company, focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. We're building on the shoulders of elite journalists like Matt Bellany, Dylan Byers, Bill Cohan, Julia Yaffe, Tina Wen, Peter Hamby, Teddy Schleifer, who you uh, referred to earlier. And, and I think somewhat interestingly, we're, we're, we have an innovative business model that's based on a couple of factors. One, it's a subscription-first model, although we believe in, in blended advertising as a piece of it. We no longer need to explain to people on this podcast why subscriptions are interesting to publishers and to creators. Right. We don't, but I'll say the annual recurring revenue is, is a meaningful piece of yeah. it. And, and the modern marketing skills that we've seen in everything from politics to Warby Parker-style DTC companies are really descending on media in a powerful way. That also actually makes advertising even more valuable because many elite brands want to be adjacent to media companies that have a deeper relationship with their audiences through subscription. But one piece that that has been interesting, I think, that the the media has picked up on itself, not surprisingly, is we are not only built on the back of journalists, but they're our business partners. Matt Bellany, Bill, Teddy, Julia, they're my partners. They're our founding partners. They are all equity holders in the company, and um, we are building subscriptions around their work. So we incentivize them to make sure that they get a meaningful piece of that, too. So it's a venture-backed company, and we're going to talk about that in mm-hmm. a second. Um, you're giving this initial group of writers equity. As you hire more writers is the pitch, they all get equity as well. At some point, you'll top out, I assume. We believe in the in the um, 
journalist owner model. Yeah. And there, I mean, there are certainly um, many ways you can arrange that financially, but we believe equity is the, is the cleanest. The, the opening tier is 100 bucks a year, and there's a special access tier for, for 250 What is someone like Matt Bellany, who was uh, for many years the editor of Hollywood Reporter and has really, I think, sprung to life in the last few months with his newsletter he's doing for you, what does he get out of joining Puck? that he wouldn't get if he did his own Substack. His email is an instant hit. Um, wouldn't he be better off just, just going on his own? Well, I don't want to speak format. And in fact, I know he spoke on this podcast not yeah. long ago. Um, I'm sure he addressed it. But my view would be that the thesis of the company is that media is operating along a long spectrum now, our kind of media. On the one hand, you have large, safe, successful institutions um, we know what they are. You, you may have a certain amount of safety, but you probably sacrifice a certain amount of creativity, or a certain amount of freedom there. And on the other half, you have a more, more DIY options in the creator economy. We're right in the middle. We offer the best of the old world, meaning great editing, art direction, legal vetting, incredible marketing. It's sort of the core competency of our, of our company. Max J, my co-founder, was um, you know the head of growth marketing at The Athletic and before that, you know, game time, extraordinary um, you know competency there. And the best new distribution streams too. So we think that there are going to be many winners in this new creator economy as it, as it enters journalism. And our view is that we're stronger together and bundling elite talent like Matt and Peter and Bill and Tina, I mentioned everyone's name already, that's a powerful force, both for an audience member, a consumer, a reader, what we used to call readers, but it also allows them to introduce their audiences to one another, and it allows us to put all the you know technical and and operation um, you know capacities beneath them and, and operate that at scale. And I, I assume, just based on you know, and we're approaching this incredibly humbly. I'm not just saying that we, we really are. Uh, Meat is a tough business. Based on the success we've seen so far, I think everyone on the team recognizes that um, for the, the type of journalism that we do, that we are stronger together. I just interviewed Tom Lay, he's the editor-in-chief of Defector, you know their story, and they're kind of doing what you're doing. It's a very different mm-hmm. product, um, but they've got you know now a couple dozen writers. They're charging 80 bucks a year to read Defector. They're not venture-backed. They're, their whole premise is they're a collective. Um, that model seems to work. Why do you guys need and want venture money to run this? Because one of the things we've been hearing for, for years now, after the sort of last influx of venture capital into media was, oh, that distorts um, ambitions and outcomes. Mm-hmm. And if you can just build a self-sustaining business without taking on money, um, go do that. Right. Well, why, why do you need that money? And, and why do they need to pay the, the likes of you and your co-founders? Well, to, to be, uh, for starters, Defector is great. We learned a lot from them. I think they launched about a year ago. And we studied that launch intimately. In fact, one of the reasons we decided to really roll out our company in full view pretty transparently was because we believe that media companies should be learning from one another right now. We believe that pretty firmly. We're, we're media nerds. We, we love studying our peers, and we want to give them the chance to reciprocate for better or for worse. The Defector, um, I can't remember how many journals started, but let's call it a dozen. And it had a very cool rollout. I think you could, in addition to subscribing to the content, I think you could also join their legal defense fund mm-hmm. for, for future lawsuits that they uh, presaged. My view is, and I spent, as you know, a fair amount of time um, after I left the Hive, you know, working at TPG studying this stuff, is there's not a lot of CapEx that you've got to put into this, but you have to build out some, some core competencies. We wanted to attract journalists in the prime of their careers. We wanted to 
pay them more than reasonably, really, frankly, close to top of market and incentivize them to do their best work. And we wanted to do it responsibly. And we felt that the best way to incentivize this talent, and this is based on a bazillion conversations that we had over, for me, for me, over, you know, almost a year and a half or two years, how do we find a way to make sure that these are people who have families, they feel safe, uh, they don't, you know, everyone takes some risk when they join a new company, but they're not going to, you know, uh, absorb a more significant risk that you might take if you were doing it all alone. And how do we also incentivize them for success? And, you know, how do we make sure that we are all aligned to build this together? And I think that to me, as I had these conversations over and over with, with the talent that joined, maybe some of the talent that didn't, it was clear to me that this was the way to do it and to get the best out of everyone, giving them the upside opportunity to achieve and also certain comforts from, from the old world that we think do still work. We needed capital to do that. And, you know, and, and I think one thing that writers and, and editors and, and the creative people or the, the creative side of business doesn't always appreciate is how much operational work goes into making media. You know, I, I sort of had a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde experience where I went from being an editor to learning how to be a media operator. And I, I, I was embarrassed by how little I knew about the business until I really... It's not turnkey now? I thought that was the whole premise was you, you put up a blog and there's an email company that handles that and, and someone just makes it go. There are a lot of softwares that allow you to get started. But if you want to scale and scale responsibly, it requires a ton of strategy, having a lot of smart people around and having meaningful marketing budgets to grow your audience. I, I think when I, when I talk to, I mean, these people are on your podcast, you know better than I do, but when I talk to creators who've taken the leap, I think you find a sort of life cycle. The first step is extraordinary euphoria. They're thrilled. They don't really have a boss anymore, or they have a different kind of boss. The next step is growth. They see something happening there using largely their organic social channels. It's Twitter. Twitter, yeah, yeah, mostly Twitter, maybe in some cases Instagram, but, but mainly Twitter. And they grow two audiences at the top of the funnel, as we call it, which is the, the big one, the, the, the leads, um, often in the tens of thousands in some cases. And then the lower funnel audience, which is a lot smaller, but both numbers are exciting. And then there's the next phase, which is how do I scale this or what do I do next? And I think that we anticipated all along that to address the scale issue, this was going to be, we had to build a meaningful business. And I think there's one other difference too. I don't mean to belabor the point. We believe in brands at Puck. We believe that Puck is a brand. And we think that, you know, where it's headed is about new, we call them right-sized brands. They're not going to be as big as the New York Times. They may not be as small as the Substack. And by the way, Substack's an amazing company. The Times obviously is incredible. I spent a lot of years there. But there's going to be a new generation of brands built around the creator economy that are fitted for unique psychographic audiences. The Defector is a great example. We want to be another example. And we think that that landscape is going to be totally remade. And part of why this is so interesting and appealing to me and why I, you know, really bet everything on, on doing this was because I'd come up in the magazine business and I grew up in the heyday of the magazine business, frankly. The last, the last gasp of it, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, you know, flowers came in from Holland every Monday. I mean, it was, um, there was champagne everywhere. It was an extraordinary time. And it was a, I think it was like a $200 million a year business when I worked at Vanity Fair. Was it? How many people read Graydon Carter's emails for him? No comment. Um, uh, no, I'm kidding. He responded to his own emails. I think that was actually— I thought someone printed them out for him. Um, I worked directly for Graydon, and uh, maybe there was some printing being done. Um, maybe when there was a detail in one of those quibby stories about Jeffrey Kasberg having his emails printed out for him, and I, 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 I laughed as a guy who'd worked for um, uh, a hegemon of that generation. But what I was, you know, sort of drilling down on is that 
what you used to call magazines seems like it's going through the same sort of transition that the music business went through. You know, when when we were a lot younger, Napster basically took the album and turned it into singles. And Twitter did that to magazines. You used to be able to create yep. this one beautiful thing called the magazine, and then it was just individual stories. And so much of the the the, the artistry of it just went away, you know? But now, and now you're kind of putting the magazine. We think we're back reconstituting together. what it. Well, it's not a magazine anymore, but we think it, it's a new generation of, of what that is. And I, frankly, I think that Puck could be a big piece of it, and that there will be more brands that are that size that populate this part of the landscape, which is in between. On one hand, the big guys, and on the other hand, the single operators. And we were saying before we started taping, you know. I like Matt Bellany's newsletter. I had him on. Yeah. Uh, he's great. Um, I definitely want him in my inbox. I, I'm sure everyone else is great, too. Teddy's great. I worked with him for years. <laughs> but I may, I may just want to read Matt. Can I, can I get a feed to a single writer? Can I? There's no way for me to. I've got to pay for the bundle. Mm-hmm. That's the deal. But what if I just want that that writer? Can I get that writer? That's fine. I, I, of course. And, and I mean, Matt is literally. Um, uh, I feel like he's like a national obsession. Everywhere I go, yeah. people talk about Matt, and and with, with good reason. Just you know, such an extraordinary talent. It's also wild to see someone like become a public. I mean, he's obviously a person, right? He ran a big trade, but he did not have this kind of reach, and he would, didn't. I don't think he had the kind of influence he had until he left his trade. I feel the same way, too. Um, you know, I, I don't want to speak for Matt, but, you know, he has an authority that he always deserved, and I think he always had a singular voice, and now he gets to express it. We think media should be a la carte. Um, you know, it's funny. I actually I remember hearing a long time ago a quote attributed to Jan Winner. It's probably apocryphal, but nevertheless, uh, he allegedly said, magazines are the perfect technology. You don't like something? Turn the page. And, and I always kind of laughed at that, but there's something true. We want to create a media company that's customizable. When you log into your Puck account, as I hope you do, you can customize it so that you only read Matt's emails. You'll still get Matt's emails on Thursday and Sunday night. If you want to read them as articles or just, you know, as, as web links, go to our site. Go to puck.news, and that's fine. Get Graydon Carter's assistant to, <laughs> to read them to <laughs> yeah, me. Exactly. I mean, maybe able to help you out with that. So we want to be able to customize this the same way you, you – I mean, and I'm not trying to be cute here, like – Customization is a real thing in our economy, whether you're at Chipotle or ordering something from the yes. And we know that if you're doing media now, you have to heed those lessons too. We do think, on the other hand, there are a lot of consumers, thousands and thousands and thousands of them, who want the bundle. Yeah. And that's okay too. Uh, what what will success look like for you? How many subs do you need to, to make this an, an, uh, an ongoing proposition? You know, um, I don't want to be evasive here, but uh, success— but, you will be. but I'll be slightly evasive here and say— um, uh, Success, we're very ambitious about this project. And, and what we've seen so far leads us to believe that what we thought was the ceiling, we can, we can blow right through it. But what we have learned, because we're all adults at Puck, is that we don't want to super scale this beyond the capacity of Puck. The, the beauty of being in a subscription business is that we know that one day there will be a limit to the number of, you know, there's, there's a TAM for Puck, whatever it is, right? And so... When we approach that, there are ancillary lines of businesses that we can open up. I'm stuck on TAM. You have a total addressable market. That's right. And then we'll be able to um, to consider other options too, especially, and I'm not trying to tip my you know hand here too much, but when you're, we're building out, I think, a pretty world-class marketing and tech operation underneath the content. So that's extensible, and I think that there's a lot that we can do with that over time. Was this harder to raise money for than you anticipated going into it? Well, you know, we, you've we, been talking about this for several years now. We were um, w- we started raising money in earnest during COVID. Um, 
which was harder in the sense that, you know, I think we thought we were going to be entering a, a, a Great Depression for the first two months of COVID yeah. before we realized we were entering a new golden age. Um, in a funny way, uh, setting up Zooms is easier than flying to San Francisco, um, which is, you know, usually what the alternative is. But it's harder to capture that um, same ability to connect with people. In the end, we raised Series A capital from TBG, which obviously was where I was coming from and had a relationship with, and, uh, and Standard Industries, where I had a relationship also. And uh, who – your investors matter. You know, you have to be simpatico and, and you have to have a long-term vision. I think when you talked before about venture capital, I'm not trying to, to, uh, to lead here, but I – Surmise that one of the challenges that some media companies had, and by the way, all these media companies are having, are going to have large, meaningful exits here. So I think a lot of the the Sturm and Drang was was overplayed. But we think there's something valuable about having a smaller cap table, a, a, a smaller group of investors. That way, you can really plan for the long term. And I know that TBG and Standard are both committed to not just the long term purpose here, but figuring out how do we recreate this part of the media industry for the next generation. I feel like you're going to walk out of here and then tomorrow I'm going to read an Axios story about you guys raising $50 million. <laughs> um, we, we want to be a right-sized company. You know, I, I, I mean that. Let me let me ask you about the, back to the, the magazine thing yeah. because this will be a briefer conversation than I'd like for a bunch of different reasons. We'll, we'll have you back on in success a year from now. <laughs> the pitch that I heard not from you but from other people when sure. you were casting about for writers was – Basically, John wants to recreate what he did at Vanity Fair, which is you ran a successful digital version of Vanity Fair there. You were going to go get Vanity Fair writers, go get New York Magazine writers, and you sort of get those guys uh, together. You kind of have some of those people, but not not entirely. But is that pitch correct sort of in terms of who you're going after, both readers and, and, and writers, or do you want it to be broader than that? We're not trying to recreate Vanity Fair. I mean, first and foremost— we're trying to create a place where the inside conversation in these worlds takes place. And for a lot of reasons, that's just something different. Um, and I think that over time, it became, like all ideas, you know, it, it, it crystallized over over months and years. And the world changed, too. Uh, I think that um, Trump not being president actually uh, made it easier to create this kind of media company now because all the Trump headlines are at least somewhat recessive. And I should say as well, Tina Wen, uh, one of our political yep. reporters, is, is a, you know— She's uh, on the, the homepage of your she site is, today. She is, yes. She is, is an incredible Trump reporter. But it allowed us to focus on some of the more deeper, bigger seismic issues like what Matt's writing about all the time with the streaming wars, what Bill's writing about all the time with, you know, the what's going on at the Fed. And so it turned out that the, the period that we were fundraising— allowed this idea to crystallize for me that really, at the end of the day, was all about breaking down the fourth wall between the journalists and their audience. And I think that, and I say this as someone who's worked on literally a bazillion, you know, magazine and, and digital feature stories in my life, there is an artifice in some of that that a, a new generation of media doesn't want to deal with. You know, they we call it farm-to-table journalism. People don't just want to sit at the table and order the meal. They want to know the story behind the pork or the, the lamb, and they want the chef to come there and, and talk to them about it. And we think that that's actually something that is, is pretty replicable in journalism. And there's a lot of, like, what we call news, newsletter-style writing that only just happens to be in a newsletter. When, when I was a kid in short pants at Vanity Fair, that was what Dominic Dunn and Christopher Hitchens did in a magazine. They, they wrote intimately at a high level, and they assumed that everyone— who was coming to their page 
already had a pretty solid grasp on what was going on in the world, and they didn't have to go through the to be shores and, mm-hmm. and and all the a matter to get there. So there's something actually pretty clarifying about this. You're in the circle. Just by reading this, you know what's going on. We assume you want to be here. We weren't trying to shove this into your Facebook feed and hope that you stumbled into it. And now I'm stuck between your Chipotle metaphor and your farm-to-table metaphor. Um, and is this not- a different show? I thought I thought this was the Eater show. Yeah, so and I'm not going to try to end with a third uh, food metaphor. I will say you're strong out of the gate. Uh, I wish you luck. Um, thanks for coming. We'll have you back. Great. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Pleasure John. to be here. Thanks again to John Kelly. Thanks again to Adam Mosseri. Thanks as always, but especially this week, because there's a lot of work to do, to Jelani and Joel for editing and publishing this thing, turning around quickly. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing it to you for free. You still do not have to pay for Recode Media. Would you pay? If you pay, let me know. Maybe for a bonus thing. Is there a bonus thing you pay for? Let me know. Um, thanks to you guys for listening. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week. more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.